to meet that guy. <laughs> Good morning. It's wonderful to be here. Um, I want to say right off the bat, as, a, as I've been invited to speak here, the elders lead the church. They can correct me at any time. They can stop me and say, you're speaking rubbish, get out, and I'll go. <clears throat> if I say something you don't like, don't stone me, just let me go in peace. Is that all right? But I am submitted to the elders, and so they can stop at any time. They are the, the ultimate authority in the local church. Um, today's not so much a systematic teaching as I'm going to talk about. I've got points, but I'm going to talk about something that my... Tom asked me to speak on loving Jesus, loving the church. <clears throat> and so I am going to speak from, can, can you put on your kindergarten hat? Because we're going to speak at kindergarten level today. Is that all right? Because I, I, I think what I like to do is actually get into the foundations of things and remind us. Often we forget what the foundations of life are. Um, if you grade a diamond, I've been using this a lot in the last while, a diamond grader will have a, his black cloth with his diamonds that he wants to grade, but he will first study a perfect diamond, and he'll look at, put his monocle on, and he'll study, and he'll study, and he'll study, and when he feels he knows that, he will then pick up a diamond and begin to grade it, but he's grading toward the perfect. When he's graded three or four, he'll stop and go back to the, the perfect and study it again, because if you, don't, if you stop going back to the perfect, as you go along, you start comparing to the one that came before, and very soon, you're downgrading. And we do that as believers. We downgrade because we start comparing ourselves to one another. We, either too, we think we're better or we think we're worse. Actually, rather than grading ourselves to the ultimate, which is Jesus. So this is very, very basic, if that's all right. I love this carpet. I love seeing the kids on the carpet. It's like a magic carpet ride. <laughs> I want to say, if you have so many kids, you've got to put them on a real adventure. You can't, you can't shield them from life. You've got to engage them in life because they want an adventure. And if we want our Christianity and our church to go into the next generations and go on forever and ever, we have to put them on adventure. I remember we took a team to the Amazon jungle. We lived on a boat for two weeks, swimming in the Amazon River and all that. And we took five and six-year-olds with us, with their parents, because it's an adventure. And those kids are still serving the Lord powerfully because they've got an adventure. And so we have this in our family. Um, this is not the talk. This is just interlude to children. Uh, we call it the four Bs. With your kids, if there are no bumps, bruises, blood, or broken bones, they haven't played hard enough. <laughs> is that right? But you can't shield your kids. Let them climb trees, fall out, and break an arm. It's okay. They will survive. We, we really have to invest in our kids a sense of adventure, a sense of danger, a sense of that the world is something to be explored and not something to be afraid of. Because if they really have Jesus, then this world's a perfectly safe place to live in. Is that right? So that is my sort of my introduction. I'll tell you a little bit about my story, but I think it'll give um, meaning to what we want to talk about today. So I'm an only child. I come from a, a very low-income family. I'm South African. Um, my mom married my dad in rebellion to my grandmother. My dad was a, an abusive man verbally and physically to my mom. She was going to divorce him, then found out she was pregnant with me, stayed in the marriage. I was born. My dad was still abusive to my mom, abusive to me. At 18 months, he took me for a drive, left me locked in the car, went into the pub and got slammed out of his mind. That was it. My mom divorced him. I was raised by my grandparents and my mom. Again, low income. My grandfather was a, a tyrant. Lovely man, but a tyrant. 
There was no Christianity in this at all. My first six years of school were at six different schools in three cities. And then I went to an eight years one school, I went to a Catholic boarding school. At that boarding school, I was bullied beyond measure, especially at the young ages, and I was sexually abused by one of the priests. So I'm a victim of sexual abuse. Um, left that, like we all go to the military, so I'm a survivor. I'm an only child. You have to survive, which makes you independent, which makes you not want to trust anybody. Anybody comes away, looks, I'm going to smack you in the face. You're a survivor. That's how I became. Went to university, I was skydiving, dropped out of university because I didn't have money to skydive, got a job. Wasn't, never thought about Jesus. This wasn't even in my, my framework. But a friend of mine, uh, his dad, actually, my best friend's dad said, I'm going to this church. It was called the Invisible Church. And if you've met Chris Vinant, Chris, we all come out of the Invisible Church. He said, the music's good. So I said, oh, let's go. I'm a musician. Not much anymore. This is arthritis. So, always I tell the little kids, that's what happens if you pick your nose. <laughs> and I had a little, a little guy tell me a, a few weeks ago, what happened? So I, I play it. Oh, from picking my nose, and he looked at me, there's horror in his face, and his response to me was, but I don't pick my nose with that finger. <laughs> so that was, that was wonderful. So I go to this church called the Invisible Church, which became, if you've heard, Glenridge, where Chris and we all come from, and I walked in, and it was in a warehouse, and it was like, just weird. I've been to, into a Catholic church, obviously I went to Catholic boarding school, and this was just different. But standing in front of me was a young lady, and I looked at her. I was dating another girl. She was out of town. That's why I was at church. I looked at this girl. I said to my friend, you see that girl? He said, I'm going to marry her. I am married to her. Next month, 36 years. Um, but I didn't know Jesus. But the pastor got up and started speaking from Romans, and Jesus intersected my life. Powerfully. I don't know what I was thinking. Just so you know, I had two guns strapped to me, a knife. All those, you know those things? And there was an altar call, and I rushed to the front. I found myself in the front, kneeling, but then trying to pull my jeans down so that not, my guns were invisible. But I met Jesus that night, powerfully. That next week, I mean, I sold my, my motorcycle, my guns, my knives. Just everything went. It was like it was so radical. Now what? So our pastor, who was an amazing man, he said to me, you need to read 1 John. The letter of 1 John is still my favorite book in the Bible. And he said, I want you to read it every day. It's got five chapters. Read it every day for a month. And so I did. And I began to read. And I got to this verse in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, how great is the love that the Father has lavished upon us. This is NIV, old NIV. That we should be called the children of God. For that is what we are. And it, I started thinking and and people were talking about God as father, and I didn't have a dad. because oh, The part I missed, when I was five, my dad was killed in a car accident. So all this stuff. So I decided I'd never heard of a retreat, but I decided I was going to go away by myself with my Bible and ask God to show me some things. And he did. It was like God, down, in, in today's computer language, it was like he downloaded something into my heart that he was my dad. And I was his son. That verse is it's in my office, it's up on a wall, it holds me intact. But what came out of that was the realization that if I was a son of God, a child of God, then I needed a family. 
which I didn't fully understand either because I come from a very broken family. I didn't understand what it was to trust a brother or a sister or have those relations. I didn't have them. The only ones I had were military or boarding school where you were surviving. And there were some good things as well. But, so, but there was this sense, oh, I've got to find what a family. So I went to the church and I began to engage the church. And it became my family. So when I talk about me being saved, Jesus saved me and so did the church. And I think what happens so often in our world is we get saved by Jesus, but we never see that played out fully into the family of God. And I loved what you got up and spoke earlier. This is a family. That's how it's meant to be. And if we don't see ourselves as loved by Jesus and saved by Jesus and added to his family where love is supposed to work, I don't think we can honestly grow and live as disciples to Jesus. I think we'll be half-hearted or broken and never rising to whatever God wants for us. So, is that, a, is that our introduction? You know a little bit about me? You can stop me anytime I ask questions. That's also all right. So, a question. How many of you were raised in the church? It's a good amount. So, when you do that, there's three things that are in play in terms of the way faith works. You could be living under inherited faith. It's faith you got from your family. You could be living in cultural faith, especially if you say we're a Christian nation, or you could live in personal faith. And we have to identify those. Because my experience of going to church is that our churches are filled with people who live under inherited or cultural faith, but truly have never engaged Jesus at the personal level where they have a faith that they can live by. That's why you have to put your kids on adventure, because they have to find Jesus for themselves, or he has to find them. They can't just live under inherited cultural faith. Is that right? And if we're going to grow and if the church is going, truly going to take the world by storm, we have to be people that are resilient and hardy, can take a bash in the face from the enemy. That comes by personal faith. If it's inherited faith or cultural faith, we, it's easy to drop away. So I'm going to ask you another question. I'm going to ask you to be honest when I, with this question. Is that all right? This, if this is a family... I'd love us to be honest. We're not going to do it eyes closed. We're not going to do anything like that. You know, close your eyes. No, just eyes open. How many of you have been hurt by the church or church leaders? That's a good proportion. Don't you think? Hurt's a terrible thing in the church. It's supposed to be the loving, graceful place, but yet so many people are hurt. And sometimes the way we do church, sometimes it's the ego of leaders. It's a whole bunch of things. You know, some people in the church have been abused sexually by leaders. It's everywhere. If that was you, and you were hurt by the church or by the leader in your, in your Christian, would you mind standing? I'm not going to call you out. I'm just going to ask you to Stand. And I'd like you, as I look around, would you look me deep in the eye, as much as you can see? Because I represent church leadership. I've been in leadership for 35 years. I've been a Christian for 40. I represent leadership, and I know that along the way, I've possibly hurt people as well. And I would like you to look me in the eye, and I'd like to say, I am so sorry that as a leader of the church of Jesus, that I've hurt you. As I represent other leaders, I want to say I'm so sorry 
that we have hurt you. I'm so sorry that your life has been affected by us who are leaders in the body of Christ. I am so, so sorry. And I'm asking, would you forgive me? Would you forgive us? Because unless you do, you'll never move forward. Would you forgive us? Would you ask Jesus to come into that broken area of your life and say, Jesus, would you bring healing there? Would you bring liberty in that area so that I can trust again, so that I can see the church become the group of people that you intended for it to be? Would you forgive me? Thank you. I'm going to ask you to process that as through the weeks that lie ahead, that you actually ask Jesus into that area of your life. And some of you might say, well, why are you doing that? What gives you the right to do that? Well, you know, when I read Nehemiah, he prays on behalf of his people. We have sinned and done wrong. And he was a righteous man. But he took on the sin of a nation. We have sinned and done wrong. And I want to take on, just to, right now, this is that representation as a leadership. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But ask Jesus in to bring healing and forgiveness. Maybe you have to sort a few things out because otherwise you do the leadership of this church a disservice because you'll never follow them properly. You'll actually never follow Jesus properly. Is that okay? I know that's a whole area to be unpacked and you can, we can chat if you need to. That's okay. But I want to t- tell you quickly about Kronos and Kairos timelines. Anyone heard that? If you don't, don't, everyone has a Kronos timeline. My, in my Kronos timeline, my chronological timeline, I am a victim of being a single, from a single mom, abuse. I'm a, I'm a victim of sexual abuse. I have all this in my Kronos. I can never change it. It's my history. Even as a redeemed person in Jesus, it's in my history. And the moment I try to wash it away, I do disservice to what Jesus has done. Because it's part of my story. But I want to not live in my Kronos. I want to live in my Kairos timeline is where I've allowed Jesus into those areas to bring healing, to bring forgiveness so that I can move on. Now, in, in our current world, we have the Me Too movement. Anyone wear it? And I hope some of you have just said, yes, because this stuff's come out. But if in five years' time, the same people are still on the same bandwagon and have never changed, there's a problem. Because now you have identified yourself primarily as a victim. I want to primarily identify myself as someone who's risen that because Jesus has come and brought healing to my life. And Yes, this is what's happened to me, but I am free because Jesus has broken in. It's not just Jesus comes to save me so I can make a transition to the heavenly realms one day. He's come to save me so that I can live a profitable and holy and healthy productive life in this world free of the things that have happened. And so we need to let Jesus into that. Kronos, Kairos. Again, that's another whole talk or series. But I want to ask you, please don't live as victims. Don't live as a victim. Ask Jesus in. And if you need to get help, counseling, therapy, get it so that you rise up. Because if you don't, this is what's going to happen. It's going to be passed to your kids. And they're going to grow up more suspicious of the church. And the moment they can get out of here, they will. Is that right? And you want them to love the church and love Jesus and love the mission. 
that he's put us on. Get healed. So let's talk about Jesus and the church a little bit. How many of you heard the statement from people, your friends, maybe you, I love Jesus, I hate the church? It's everywhere now. I love Jesus, I hate the church. The problem with that statement is then you have a problem with Jesus because Jesus loves the church. So it doesn't make any sense at all. It's just me and Jesus. Nah, rubbish. It just doesn't work like that. I don't know what book you're reading, but it doesn't say that. But I understand people hate the church because of all these things we've spoken about. And they've grown up in tyrants and it's just law and you can't do this and you can't do that. And uh, you know, I was told you cannot dance because dancing leads to sex. What? <laughs> what a lot of rubbish. So let's not have a problem with Jesus. Jesus loves the church. It's his bride. It's what's being prepared for him for all eternity. If you read the book of Ephesians, you'll know that he is head of the, the church. He's the cornerstone of the. It's through the what that he'll make known in all his wisdom to the powers and principalities. The church. So the church is really, really important. So if we want to talk about Jesus, we cannot separate Jesus from the church. Well, you could say, well, I love the church. But don't put me in the church. I'm Jesus and the, well, that's really stupid too. Because like saying, I'm human, but I don't need a family. I'm a member of the human race, praise God. That's stupid. It's like having a child, and you're, who, who had the new baby? There, there, yeah. Have the little baby, baby's born, wrapped in swaddling clothes, looks so good. And then you give that baby a little blanket little suitcase with a sandwich and a drink and you put him on the sidewalk and you say, have a nice life. Because that baby's fully human, fully part of the human race. But what happens if you do that? Die. Ah, this happens in the church. Get people saved, give them a little blanket, a little suitcase with a Bible in, put them on the side of the road, say, have a nice life. What happens? Die. Because God puts people in families, both at the natural human level and at the spiritual level. He puts people in families because it's in families that you work out what life is and you grow and you mature and you wrestle and you butt heads and it's iron sharpening iron butter. That's how you grow to become the kind of person that Jesus wants you to become. And so sometimes we start that, then we get hurt. And we say, no, I'm hurt, give me my blanket and my case, and I'll put me on the side of the road, I'm going to do my own thing. You die. I don't care how mature you are. There are those few that go into the jungle as missionaries and never come out and they stay faithful, they're great. But that's not most of us. Most of us need to be part of the family of God. I am a member of the church, but man, I've got to work it out here. I've been a Christian 40 years, I've never left a church. I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying I've planted churches. Chris and I, and we go back, we've had fights where we didn't speak for two or three years. But you know, we figured it out. Why? Because that's the way we're supposed to do it. Now we are friends and we've kept walking together. Figure it out. You know, I would say in my church, can I say it to you? Just don't be a wuss. <laughs> sort it out. 
If you've got something with, issue, with somebody, sort it out. Get some help, but sort it out. Why? Because our world depends upon it. This is more than just about you. This is about the world needing the life of God. And it's coming through you. Is that right? Um, so I'm just talking here. So we, we need to redeem the word church in some ways. We have to figure that out. Um, I'm not going to go into that, but that's, is that a question you could write down? How do we redeem church? How do we re- even redeem the word church so that we live well? But in that, I want to ask you, what Jesus are you serving? Because there are multiple Jesus, at least in our minds and in culture. What Jesus are you serving? When you talk with friends or people in the neighborhood or people at school or in the shopping mall or whatever, when you talk about Jesus, what Jesus do they think or speak about? You know, who do, they, who do they think this Jesus is? And this is worth going, go ask somebody. Who do you think Jesus is? Let's see what they say. It's actually very interesting. But if you open your Bibles to Matthew 16, you thought I wasn't going to go to the Bible, correct? In Matthew 16, there's an encounter between the disciples are together and Jesus says to them, who do people say the Son of Man is? That's the question. It's the same question that's been asked through the centuries. Who do people say I am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist. Where would they have got that? Others Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Go ask someone. He's a good teacher. He's a moral leader. He's a what? He's a what? He's a what? But he said, no, but who do you say I am? And that's ultimately the question we have to ask in church about Jesus is, who do you and I say Jesus is? It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Who do you think Jesus is? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. For him to make that declaration, the Christ, you are Messiah, that's an amazing declaration. You are the fulfillment of all the longing, expectations, prophecies, and hopes, and dreams of the Israel people for centuries or millennia. That's what he's saying there. That's pretty powerful. And Jesus goes on, I'll just paraphrase, says, Blessed are you because upon this revelation of, that you have of who I am is what I build the church upon. Is it possible that the church is weak because we've built wrong, the wrong revelation of who Jesus is? Is it possible that you have a wrong picture of who Jesus is? And therefore, the building has been built on wonky foundations. Again, please, there's no judgment accusation. I'm theorizing because it happens everywhere. You will never have the church Jesus intended unless you first have the biblical Jesus. And the biblical Jesus will build his church upon the proper foundation. And the proper foundation, as we are part of it, is that we've had a revelation that he is Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, the one and only, the Son of God, the Savior, whatever. That's the key element that we build with. See, if we only introduce people to community life, come to our church. We have the best church. We introduce them to Christian values and principles, and we present to them some sort of homeboy Jesus. That 
kind of meets every need and just loves you, whatever. What we actually end up with is a group of tidy unbelievers and churchgoers who have no power or capacity to change, grow, or impact the world. Can I say that again? Can I read that to you again? If we only introduce people to community life, Christian values and principles, and a homeboy Jesus who meets your every need, we will just have tidy unbelievers and churchgoers who have no power or capacity to grow or change or impact the world. Does that make sense? It's kind of scary though. Because when, when you take stock of your own life, you often find yourself in that. I find my, I'm a pastor and I find myself in that. We want to introduce people to our cool church. That's okay. But if you don't introduce them to Messiah, nothing really gets built. Just have great attendees. So let's talk about loving Jesus now. Are we still on on page? Are we all okay? So this revelation then will shape the way that you love Jesus, and it won't be based on feelings. Now, is it okay to have feelings for Jesus? Of course. But if that's the basis of your love for Jesus, it's a bit shaky. Why? Because feelings go up and down, and they go and come. Just if you're married, you know that. See, love for Jesus, please excuse me, worship leaders, what I want to say now. I am a worship leader. So. But love for Jesus is more than a gooey feeling that leads me to raising my hands in emotional response to the wonderful worship songs played by great musicians led by an anointed worship leader. All of which you have. If that's the measure of your love for Jesus, there's something desperately wrong. That's cherry on the top. How does the New Testament measure love for Jesus? Sorry? Love for one another. Another one. If you love me, you will? Obey. Actually, love for Jesus is determined by your obedience more than anything else. Those are Jesus' words. They're not even Paul. I mean, he says things like that. John says things like that in 1 John. But Jesus said, if you love me, You will obey me. Now that's a word that needs to be redeemed as well. Because we Americans, uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh. Uh-uh. We hate that word. Why? Because it encroaches on my individual rights. It encroaches on my right to do what I like, when I like, with who I like, however I like. So we have to redeem that word. We have to think through that word obedience. Because if you say, I love Jesus, and you're not obedient to Jesus, you are lying. Just straight up. I want to tell you, I have lied many times. <laughs> Most probably lied this last week. Obedience, it's a horrible word. Um. But a growing love and a desire for Jesus is a growing desire to obey him and do what he asks of us. So 
Next question then is, well, what does he want us to do? What does he want us to obey? Is that a fair question? Now, there's a lot of things. You actually don't even need a prophetic word. You never actually ever have to hear God personally again for the rest of your life. There's enough in here to keep you busy for a number of lives. I can't do it. I've got to wait. What's the will of God? Okay, Just get on with it. Then God will speak. I'd like to prophesy too, so I'm, I'm, I'm into all of that, okay? So I'm a rave, ultimately, I'm a raving charismatic. All right, that's right. Who doesn't like charismatic culture? But whatever. So what does he want us to do at a baseline? Say to these people, that they've had a revelation that he is Messiah, the Christ. He's the fulfillment of all this whole Old Testament, all this stuff. You are the person... And then he talks to the religious leaders and he said, they ask him, what is the greatest command? You remember that question? And he says, all of that is summed up in what? Love the Lord your God with heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. There's three levels of love there. You have to love God, you have to love yourself, and you have to love your neighbor. Now, it's much harder than it sounds. So you have to unpack. We actually are doing this in our church over the next while. What does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart? What does it mean to love with all your strength, with your mind, your soul? What does that look like? What does it mean? Some of it includes the emotional. It's wonderful because we are emotional beings. But we're doing it out of response to obedience and to love your neighbor as yourself. So a good way to start obedience to Jesus is begin to love your neighbor which means you have, might have to wake up in the morning, look in the mirror and say, you're doing good, you, you're looking good. I love you. Because if you love your neighbor, how? As yourself. So if you don't have a healthy self-image and you don't have a healthy understanding of who you are in God and your identity in Christ and all that, it's impossible to love your neighbor well. But when you do understand that, then you can love your neighbor in sacrificial love and freedom and if they reject you, it's okay because you know who you are. When we first moved to Los Angeles, we lived in San Gabriel with a little house, and our neighbor was a Japanese couple, older couple, and I went to talk to her over the fence, and she said, I said, would you like to come for dinner? She said, we don't interact with our neighbors, which we refuse to be hurt. So you've got to break barriers down in different things. We've got different cultures. It's just Everything's different. But we have to learn how to love our neighbors as ourselves. That's, a, that's an obedience to Jesus. That's what Jesus said. That's not what the leader said. That's what Jesus said. In another place, he, the, the crazy man Jesus, I mean, he said crazy things. He said, this, man, you've got to love your enemies. I want to shoot them. <laughs> I'm a leader. I've prayed for God to kill people. <laughs> Honestly. And then I had to repent. I'm going to love your enemies. So think about this. You have to love the God with everything that you are. You have to love your neighbor. You have to love yourself. You have to love your enemies. Husbands, you have to love your wives. I'm assuming wives should also love their husbands. Love one another. 1 Corinthians 13, everything you do, do in love. Basically, we're screwed. (laughs) Everything has to be rooted in love. Because it's the essential understanding of kingdom living in Jesus is that we learn to love 
And it's not gooey love, it's sacrificial love, it's serving love, etc., etc. So if you want to say, I want to love Jesus and love the church, you cannot separate it from obedience and service. Just cannot. I love you so much, brother. So what? Who cares? When they got married, I love you so much. Oh, I love you too. Just leave it at that. Great. No, I love you so much. I'm going to serve you. Let's, let's go into covenant together. Let's create an intimacy. Let's birth new children. Same in the church. This is covenant. Don't just walk out and think, I'm walking away from you. I got hurt. I'm out of here. You have to do with Jesus. Now, don't say, I'm not saying no one can ever leave a church. That's not what I'm saying. Just don't make it willy-nilly. Someone said something that offended me. I'm out of here. What? None of you would have jobs. None of you would have marriages. Isn't that true? So that's one. The other one is, you know, go into all the world and make what? Disciples. So if you're a disciple, you've got to make disciples. That's a command from Jesus, actually. Baptize them. Which is more than just water, by the way. It's actually into a Trinitarian understanding of living. And then you've got to teach them to what? Obey. Obey. Oh, we forgot about that one again. <laughs> so we get people saved. We get them baptized. Give them a little case of the Bible and get them on their way. No, we have to teach them how to obey Jesus. Because that's... Then they will know what it means to love Jesus and receive love in return. And understand, you do understand this. I didn't say this, but it's impossible to, to love God and be obedient if you have not first been loved by God. He loves us first. All right? His, his love for us is not dependent upon our love for Him. Our love for Him is dependent upon His love for us and our response to that to say, Yes, Jesus, here's my all. Use me as you will. So, how many today have prayed the Lord's Prayer? Shame on you. In the nicest way. It's a command from Jesus, is it not? Teach us to pray. Okay, here we go. Give us this year our yearly bread. Is that what it says? What does it say? Daily. So it means it's a daily prayer. Are you doing it? I love Jesus. We'll pray. That. This is what he asked of you. I just want to give you some examples. So sometimes to show how foolish we are. We do want these things, but we've got to get the basics right. And, and you don't just recite it. Pray through it. Work through it. What does it mean, our Father? What does that mean? He's not my Father. It's our Father. It means I have to be in relationship with some people. Oh, I've got to be in the church. Because if you're not in the church and you're praying our Father, that makes no sense whatsoever. It's like me as a single boy talking to my dad saying, our Father, and he's going to say, what? I only have one son. That prayer unpacks a lot of stuff. You, know? you want to be obedient? Look at his name, his will, his kingdom before your own. I mean, we'll stop there. Now, if we understand Jesus like that and we want to obey Jesus, I have nine minutes. Now we can be a family doing Jesus stuff together. 
Now we can truly be a family doing Jesus stuff together. And we love the church because it is family. And we love the church because we need each other. And like a marriage, you either win or lose together. Do you know in a marriage, the husband wins and the wife loses? It doesn't work. You either both win or you both lose. Same in the church. We either all win or we're all losing. That's why we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. Why? Because I'm happy. I don't care that you are weeping. That's your business. Just give me a nice worship song and let me rejoice. You can kneel and weep, do as much as you like. No, if they are weeping, we weep with them. When they're rejoicing, we rejoice with them. That's family. That's how it's meant to be. Now, we put the standard up there. We've got to get there. Understand, this is a, we are changing over a lifetime and growing into this over a lifetime. It just doesn't happen day one. It's a lifetime. But that's what we aim for. I love it that we celebrated birthdays. Why? We rejoice together. We have a new baby. Rejoice together. It sounds like in this church you get tired of rejoicing. But... <laughs> We had, a, we had a death in our church at the end of last year. Our key worship leader had just been with us from the beginning. We wept together. We are still weeping together. Because that's what family does. So we need to create communities of grace where joy and weeping go together, knowing that we all need grace. Someone said this as a definition of grace. Grace is the face that love wears when it comes face to face with imperfection. Grace is the face that love wears when it comes face to face with imperfection. Which means grace towards one another because none of us are there yet. We extend grace. We love on people. We give them what they don't deserve. They hurt us. We give them forgiveness. You might have to work through things, but you give them forgiveness. You offer forgiveness. So that's what grace is. I love you, but I don't want to forgive you. I don't want to. No, grace is the face that love wears when it comes face to face with imperfection. Every day, we live by grace. Live by grace. Grace is a power. Grace is a gift that in Jesus is also a power. It's also a space that He gives us to live in. It's by grace. If you want to live like that, do you want to love Jesus, love the church in, a, in an atmosphere of total grace? It's going to take humility. Do you know that? What does James tell us about humility? James 4, verse 6. God gives grace to the humble. If you want grace, you need humility. He resists the proud. So if you don't want to operate out of humility, you actually have God working against you. He's resisting you. He's resisting the things... But when you're humble, what is humility? Oh, woe is me, I'm such a... That's not humility. Humility is an understanding of who you are in God and that you live and breathe by his life. That your gifts that you use are because of him. That your, your status in life is because of him. The gifts you have to make money is from him. You understand that? That's humility. Moses said, it says in the, in, the, in, the, in the Pentateuch, Moses, the most humble man on the face of the earth. Supposedly he wrote it. What, 
it's a recognition that we need God. You know the one where they, they gave the guy in the church one Sunday, they gave him a badge, that the most humble man in the church. Have you heard that one? And the next Sunday they took it away because he wore it. <laughs> you want grace to be poured out in abundance? Humble yourself. Which, th- which means don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. It doesn't mean you shouldn't think of yourself highly. This is from Philippians. It just says don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. Right, we're in the conclusion. Is this, everyone is slow, are you slow okay? All right. If we start doing what Jesus the Christ asks us to do, I think we will begin to agape love Jesus and the church. Remember, agape love is a sacrificial, this unconditional, this service love. And the beneficiary will be the world. Because that's our mandate to take the gospel to the world. And if we begin to live the Jesus life as he intended it, loving him, loving one another, then the world will benefit. Most of the world looks at the church and says, if that's what it's like, I'm out of here. I will not come in. But what we want to present to the world is truly, you want to see where community of grace is? Come and visit our community and you will see what grace is. You want to know what generosity is? Come to our church. You want to know what hospitality is? Come to our church. I'd rather you have people come to those, those reasons to church than, have you seen our worship band? Please, the worship leaders, don't kill me. I believe, I think worship's wonderful. But this comes and goes. Hospitality, it's just loving Jesus, loving the church, loving the world. Hospitality in the Greek means the love and care of strangers. If we do begin to do this, then you know the one another's in the New Testament? Love one another, kick one another, encourage one another, all those ones. They will just be natural. They will happen. No one will be offended. Why? Because we want to grow together. And we'll correct one another where necessary. We'll love one another. We'll do all the, encourage one another, pray for one another. I don't know Because that's what a family will do. So I'll close with this sentence. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you actually have no other option. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, you absolutely have no other option but get to grips with this stuff now I know I've left a lot of holes you have to fill in ask questions that's what you've heard and you think that's the biggest load of rubbish I ever heard in my whole life just let it go but that which you there's a sense of the Holy Spirit saying this is me would you embrace it can I pray for you I'm going to ask you another thing this is where it's kind of weird. You don't, no one has to respond. It's totally fine. All right? But I'm going to ask you to trust me, and especially in this light of the world that we currently live in. One of the things that I am, and that I love doing, is I love hugging people. I really do. I believe it's part of my ministry. Now, I've done all my sexual harassment training. And what they told me there would do away with half my ministry. You're not supposed to hug anybody anymore. But I want to ask you, especially those who have been hurt by the church, 
and hurt by leaders. I'm going to go stand over there. Or at the back. I'll go to the back. I'd love to hug you and tell you that you're loved and tell you that you're amazing. And in that, that you would release and ask God to forgive those that have hurt you. If no one comes, it's totally fine. But I'd love to do that. And I'd love one of the elders and whatever to be there. Just, I'm not getting up to any mischief. All right? I like hugging everybody. It's just important. Father, you have done amazing things. We are so grateful that in the fullness of your eternity, you sent Jesus, your one and only begotten son, to come and live a pure and spotless, perfect life. And then to be our substitute to carry our imperfections and our sin and our rebellion to carry that on the cross and to die a rebel sinner's death that we might have life in you. We thank you that in your power you rose again to ensure that that which you promised we got. And I ask that your love, the love that is ascending sacrificial love would be poured out upon this community they would rise into that to become those kind of people that you intended. May this be a community that finishes well. Kind of in hurts and all things along the way, but may they be a community and each person in the community and each family in the community that finishes well. I pray, Lord, that the parents here would have a boldness and a spirit of adventure to give to their children not just to take them climbing in trees and walking in the woods and in mountains, but to set them on the path of the adventure of Jesus. I ask that you pour your blessing and your favor out upon this community.